0: What's up and welcome back to style Pod, giving you your weekly look, of what's going on in pop culture. My name is Patchy and with my co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, what's going on, man? Hey man, how's it going? You know, uh enjoying the the fall, enjoying all the <laughs> the movie news that that comes along with it, uh, as well as music news, where that I think we'll jump into off, off the top here, but uh, before we get too far into anything, and we're going to be talking a lot today, we got, I think it's four movies, a TV show, and two albums to talk, so stay tuned for that. Hit that subscribe button if you're watching on YouTube, go to soundcloud.com slash pod to catch the podcast any way you want to, and uh, give us some ratings and reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate all the feedback. Dave, before we jump into album reviews, two quick news items I wanted to get your opinion around. Uh, there's going to be a Riddler in the new Matt Reeves Batman movie. Did you hear about this? Did you see this? Did I hear about it? Yes, sir. I heard about it. Uh, why, why are you doing this, Eli? Oh, man. <laughs> <I'm>, uh, <laughs> or why are you uh, doing this, Daniel? Sorry. Yes, I'm I'm very excited. That's a fantastic choice after Jonah Hill dropped out, of course. Yeah, Jonah Hill wanting to make $10 million, which I was actually more surprised that... Uh, Robert Pattinson is not making more money playing the Batman. Apparently, under five. That's low as fuck for Batman, given yeah. how much money that movie is guaranteed to make. <laughs> uh, baffling. Baffling. Some for him. Yeah. Uh, but Paul Dano signed on to be the Riddler. Um, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this choice. And now we have Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Jeffrey Wright, and Paul Dano leading this this ensemble pretty strong yeah and we i mean i wonder how how many other rogues are we gonna get in batman we know reeves wants to have multiple villains and we knew hill was up for perhaps the penguin or the riddler is so there still plans to do a penguin who should be the penguin now i don't know um but they're picking just great choices you know i mean catwoman the shortlist was zo kravitz Anada Armas and Isaac Gonzalez, all three of them had been previously thrown out by everyone as great choices. Mm-hmm. So they clearly have their heads in the right spot in terms of this casting process. Obviously we've talked about the patents and choice already. Mm-hmm. So this is very exciting. I, I I like it when the press releases for a movie that's uh not even being made yet, like continue to excite people. So it's fun. Absolutely. Um this is gonna be a, a fun movie leading up to it. Um Star Wars trailer coming tonight. Any expectations? Nah, no, 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 me neither. I, I, I think we're going to see a lot of cool stuff that's not going to say much about the movie. Yeah, so. I, I mean, I know I have to do it, but I don't need to see more trailers. I prefer to see as little as possible for shit like that. But yeah, that's that's cool. And lastly, before we jump into the albums, Kanye West saying October 25th, this coming Friday, we will be listening to Jesus is King on all streaming platforms. Is this actually going to go down? Fool me thrice, <laughs> shame on me. Uh, uh, we'll see. The Jesus is King IMAX movie experience is uh, happening Thursday night. You can buy tickets now. So that that seems to lend some uh, credibility to this, this timing. So I have, a, I have a good feeling about it, but I'm not going to get my hopes up, obviously. I, I feel better about this than the last announcement, only because it's coming directly from Kanye and not from Kim. Um, although Kim in the past uh, has been uh, a mover and shaker in terms of when the albums are being dropped. I believe around Pablo, she was dropping a lot of hints and talking right. a lot about it. So uh, we'll see. Uh, I'm not going to get my hopes up, but if we're listening to Kanye this coming weekend, I'll be very pleasantly, uh, very happy about that, I guess I'll say. Um, while we move on to album reviews though, Cash Stall and clipping let's start with clipping uh sure or do you want to start with cash doll which one i have the cash doll thing up let's, let's, do, oh, cash sorry. Doll. let's do cash doll detroit rapper and uh very uh i'm surprised this was doing a little bit of research well her first like strong mixtape what her first mixtape was 2015 with uh, uh keisha versus cash doll is that right that's correct sir yes and then and then she signed this uh this label deal and was kind of in production hell so to speak with her other albums and then finally was released from her label and dropped the brat mixtape um back in 2017 and finally we're getting the official studio album from Cash Doll uh how you feeling about this this stacked album uh I like it uh, on its face just because I think Cashel is just really competent as a as a rapper. We've talked about her a little bit recently because she was featured on the Dreezy album, Chanel Slides, a song we both liked. Uh, she was on that Pusha T uh, song, Sociopath, a few months ago. And she's kind of just been making waves with, with uh, guest spots like that. And like you said... Despite her kind of being in the game for a minute now, she really hasn't made too much noise at this point. She's already twenty-seven, almost twenty-eight, and I feel like this past year plus is really when she's finally got kind of got her her name out there <clears throat> and is now like a full mainstream force. Now uh, we talked about uh, the the female rappers kind of progressing in terms of just sheer popularity and awareness. Recently, obviously, people like Megan Thee Stallion and so we. And Rico Nasty list goes on uh, but there's also all these doll rappers it's kind of like the littles for the guys you know and um, yeah, Cuban doll dream doll Asian doll cash is the best of them easily um, not to loop them all together for being uh, women but they have similar names that's why I'm doing it and I think yeah, I think cash all is pretty solid I had nothing like blew me away on this album stacked but you know it's 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 pretty good what do you think yeah, I didn't find anything that really stood out, but I found it to be a fun listen, and I, I really think she establishes herself or reestablishes herself as a um, a strong artist who uh, I think has potential to move into those upper echelons of of rappers and artists. Um, I, like the song "Ready Set" with Big Sean feels like, and it was a single as well, but feels like where you can see a lot of her potential. I, I think she really. Vibes really well with Big Sean on that album. Yep. They really seem to trade um, trade verses uh, smoothly and succinctly. And I, I think she displays a lot of what uh, what could be for her. Uh, other places, I, I found you know, seventeen tracks. I found a lot of them to be very similar. Yep, um, a lot of similar uh, t- content too. Mostly they're like talking about difficult relationships or you know bragging about just how awesome she is and how much money she gets, which sure, whatever that that's fun too. But, uh, you know, it, it, it was still a really enjoyable list. I think there's, uh, a lot of fun songs right on here. Yeah, I, I agree. Can it out to you. Yeah. I, I, I like the, the big Sean song for sure. Uh, thought doing too much was pretty good. And the other feature I really liked was, uh, on site with trigger with Trey songs. Uh, haven't listened to too much Trey songs the last uh, half decade or so, but I thought he acquitted himself pretty well on that. That's pretty solid, and I think you know I think she Cashall has shown that she's not going to go like full crossover. She does feel like she's like like the Sweetie has done recently. She is definitely more about the actual rapping, and she's pretty proficient as a technical rapper, so that that's a good idea. But yeah, like you said, um, some of this gets a little samey, but. Overall, I think all the features were pretty solid. I even didn't mind Little Wayne. I still don't really need to hear new Little Wayne, but I thought he was okay on Kitten, you know, which is just kind of an obnoxious <laughs> song given the the content as you expect. But it's fun, yeah. so yeah, uh, it's a uh, it's a it's a pretty solid uh, album. I you know, I don't know what, for her profile, like she already like you know got like a pop and ass Instagram, right? Like she's already pretty famous. And I wonder if any of the music can truly transcend to that level. Like Megan has the music to back up her fame and her clout and the hot girl summer and all that stuff. And I don't know if Cash Cashaw totally has like the total music package to back her level of fame at this time, but it also probably doesn't matter. You know, she's good enough on the mic that she'll be around for a while. Absolutely. I think uh, we're seeing the start of a, a long career for her. I'm um, to move on to clipping there existed an addiction to blood. Um, <laughs> David Diggs uh, and two producers, William Hudson and Jonathan snipes released a couple of albums under this, this rap group um, in the past. And they've all been kind of like concept albums, which I find pretty interesting. David digs. Um, I think maybe more well known for his acting. Um, you know, I, uh, on Broadway in Hamilton, and then in a lot of movies recently, what was the movie he was in last year with by like the shooting uh blind spotting yes, blind spotting, yeah. and he um, raps that movie and he's just an incredibly talented person in general um, this was an interesting listen um for a couple of reasons it, it it's takes this concept of this old vampire movie from the seventies, so it's it, you know it kind of has source material it's working off of and without knowing the source material that well I felt like maybe I was you know kind of missing out a little bit mm-hmm. on it um but it, I I found myself kind of bored throughout the listen only because I, I felt like a lot of the songs kind of had the same feel to them um and nothing seemed to really jump out as like a, a real standout song except for maybe two of them um but overall I, I thought I think it's interesting to be taking these like pieces of, of art that have already been made and these things that like inspire them and in trying to like make albums off of this. So I give them a lot of credit for that. What did you think of there existed an addiction to blood? Yeah, I think the, the thing with David, who's the sole vocalist of the group, as you said, and the thing with a lot of the clipping songs, at least on this album, is that, you almost get like distracted by how technical rappy he is with his delivery and his punchlines is like a very technical punchline flow. And that almost distracts you from the fact that a lot of the songs are almost structured the same way. And a lot of times they sound the same, which is weird because the production is often all over the place. It's very much experimental hip hop, very like noisy production. And, the delivery kind of reminds me a lot of like standing on the corner or maybe some rap songs Earl sweatshirt or Mike or death grips, you know, but it almost doesn't feel quite as unique as like it presents itself to be. At least sometimes like I know like on mid city, their first mixtape from 2013, that, di- that didn't seem quite the case to me, but this time they, they go full horror core, as you said, mm-hmm. with the content and I don't know. It's just a little inaccessible, I think, at times. You kind of just have to really lock in to get the full picture because with this kind of production, naturally, it's not super uh, pleasing to the ear, I guess. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to be in that right space to kind of appreciate this. But I-, I would never say any of this is bad, you know? It's right. certainly not. It's just very much trying to be a certain thing. So you just kind of have to be in that mood. Yeah, and I think it's hard to kind of get into that mood for myself, at least, only because it's very, I mean, it's very dark. The beats are pretty heavy. Um, It's it's not necessarily something where I, like, listen to it, and I was like, oh, I'll throw this on the car, or I'll sit down just to kind of, like, get into this mood. I mean, it is spooky season, being October (laughs) and all, so, like, I, I appreciate the attempt at, Getting in the, the spirit of the season but just uh not not for me i think what did you think of um the last track like, where they were like burning the piano what's it called 19 uh, minutes piano burning what's well, a thing mid-city the first project has like a 10 minute outro similar similar idea it's uh he's saying um, get money get money and like, he, he switches it around it's basically the same loop over and over uh and this is almost like a quadruple down on that four projects later or we literally listen to the sounds of a fire, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, super indulgent. Do your thing, man. But I was actually kind of happy. I was like, "Oh, so this album is then not actually an hour plus. We can trim off eighteen whole minutes." <laughs> Sick. Yeah, That that's pretty much how I felt too. I was like, "All right, all I hear is the fire crackling." So like the first like minute, started skipping around the same thing. I was like, "All right, cool. I'm over this." I will <laughs> say, I listened to the whole thing. I listened to the whole thing. Uh, the whole the whole fire. Turns out okay. the piano did burn.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: and you can just take my word on that. You probably don't have to, uh, <laughs> I'm going sure, to. double check yourself. No need to fact check me there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, uh, David, I, I found his music always really interesting because in Blind Spotting from last year, the movie, of course, the rap scene is like a very distinct in your face, um, not subtle moment that I think is kind of the make-or-break point of of whether you like or love the movie. And for me, it wasn't that subtle, and it kind of took me out of it. Uh, That's why I like something like Sorry sorry to Bother You, like, much more. They're they're kind of a similar vein. And David, you know, when Hamilton comes out, he's kind of the one who gives, like, the real, like, cred to that music that play because he's the actual rapper there he's you know like lin-manuel talented ass guy obviously genius for writing all that but it's like harvard rap you know it's like it's not Mm -hmm. like real hip-hop but david is of real hip-hop so he almost gave like real credence i think to the work and meanwhile his own work that he actually does is you know he signed the sub pop records who is famous for like pioneering nirvana and like the grunge wave thirty or twenty five years ago. Yep. And Davi's just making fucking like death grips, lo fi shit, man. It's uh <laughs> it's kinda wild. But you know, good for him, man. He's uh he's killing it. So uh this is this is definitely like it's very niche stuff, you know. But I'm sure this will please a lot of a lot of his fans and death grip fans, stuff like that. So pretty cool. I, but not I not think- my favorite stuff. Other than Hamilton, the thing I like him in most is the uh, the Andy Sandberg movie about the the juicing in the cycling world. Uh, he's uh, Seven Days in Hell. Man. Yeah, Seven Days in Hell. Is, is that Wait is no. that one or is that that's the no, uh, tennis toward pharmacy? Yeah, that's what it is. Seven Days in Hell is uh, the uh, that, tennis one. Yeah, he's both of those are hilarious. Um, definitely recommend checking those out. Uh, why don't we move forward on to something we've been really excited for? Damon Lindelof's Watchmen. For HBO um, it was a remix a, mm-hmm. uh, a remix of the famous Watchmen uh, comic book series uh, the source material is incredibly popular and the movie back in what oh nine um, yep. Snyder Yeah, Snyder he did release the Snyder cut uh, came <laughs> and it was received I, I think with mixed reviews and I don't know where you fall on it maybe that's a good place to start. I really liked Zack Zach Snyder's version of Watchmen. I thought it was actually a really engaging movie and I liked the the way he shot it and the whole feel to it. How did you feel about it? Yeah, um Snyder was the f- person that finally got that movie made. I know uh, it was Aronofsky, tons of other people, uh Neil Neil Gaiman, like uh some people tried to make Watchmen happen and people long thought it was unfilmable because of the depth of the text. Mm-hmm. And then Snyder finally got it across. And I think, you know, visually it, it might be his best movie yeah. in terms of, um, the, the flair that is a Zack Snyder visual film. It's that and 300. Mm-hmm. And it's a very faithful adaptation of the plot of Watchmen, like the A to B plot of it all. And I like it for that regard. I find it very entertaining. And it's again, it's nice to look at. And I, I have the blu-ray actually. Um, but it doesn't really capture the subtlety of the work or the overall message of, of, of the comic. So it really depends on what you want. Like in terms of like a a full adaptation, I guess it fails because I think everything would because like there, there's so much deconstruction of what superheroes mean, and there's so much psychological stuff going on in the Watchmen comic from was it eighty eighty six I think it is eighty five. Yeah. Um, that's just not there in the movie. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Like, unfortunately, Alan Moore, who was the co-creator of the comic, he feuded and fought with DC Comics for years over this work, and he has disavowed any and all adaptation spinoffs. Um, 2012, they did the Before Watchmen prequel comics. I actually have those. I have not read them, though. Mm-hmm. Um, like he he wants nothing to do with this and he feels like a bastardization or a, what do you call it? I think in one of his quotes from like 10 years ago, he, he didn't want Watchmen prostituted out. I think is how he said, wow. uh, even Gibbons, you know, his co-creator, co-writer. kind mm-hmm. of he, he's he been more diplomatic, but it's kind of like through like gritted teeth where he's like, yeah, you know, uh, we thought we did a good, we don't need to add, add to it. You, we should just leave it alone. It's so mm-hmm. good. that And, in a sense, that's right, but we live in the world of IP. Warner Brothers owns Watchmen, and currently, uh, uh Doomsday Clock, an ongoing comic series the past two years. The 12th issue comes out in December. That's a thing where, like, through t- time multiverse shit, uh Superman and the Justice League cross paths with the actual Watchmen, and they get brought into that full DC universe in this mm-hmm. comic event series. Obviously, Alan Moore fucking hates that that's a thing. Right. But... Dave Lindelof from the start said that he uh he did not want to adapt to anything. So he did not want to do what Snyder did. He wanted yeah. to remix it as you said. So while I think Snyder shouldn't get too much shit for the movie, um, and I don't think he really does to be honest, uh Damon's not trying to do that, which I think is a very smart tact, you know, ten years later. Yeah. And he's been pretty open in interviews about how this was something that was very important to him, how much he liked the comics and how he felt a lot of anxiety taking on this project because he wanted to make sure that he did it justice and that he was, I think, addressing the spirit of Watchmen, which I think is probably where a lot of those quotes come from the creators of not wanting to have any part of what it's become now and how they're trying to like tie it into the dc world because Watchmen, in a sense you know created this its own superhero world but it was a major commentary on society at that time but also yeah. a critique of superheroes and how people like built them up in in these comics and, um, right yeah and uh, i think uh you know just a one last thought on the movie i think Snyder made more of a uh, superhero movie out of it you know a lot of the flourishes especially in terms of like the action scenes and things like that felt very much like out of a comic book in terms like the the like jiltedness of it where it would be like slow one second then like very fast like slamming people down um but I think what Lindelof does really well in this premiere kind of bring it around is he captures that world building of watchmen and really putting you in a place in time of uh obviously affected by the events of the original comic in the present um and he really kind of gives you a sense of all these weird things all these differences that were made by the events of that time um but it's interesting because the the series starts off in 1921 the tulsa race massacre uh, uh, um, where this black boy is saved in a sense. And then there's the, uh, the shot afterwards where he's kind of like out on his own with this baby um, and trying to like figure things out and a really interesting way to start it off. And then you kind of move into more of like the present day stuff where, you know, you have Virginia Kings, uh, Angela um, and Don Johnson playing the, the police chief kind of like trying to figure out this, this murder from the, the uh 7k 7th Cal- calvary 7th calvary yeah um the the terrorist group that wears the rorschach masks and it kind of shows you how like you know regina king uh plays this, a modern superhero who's working with the police force who all themselves wear masks as well and um kind of the, the two ways that the watchmen have been taken as symbols within the society um i think it's really interesting uh, any like general thoughts about the premiere that maybe we can talk about some of the things we liked most about it or didn't like? Oh yeah, a ton. I, I, I On its face, I, I love the premiere. I thought it was mm-hmm. incredibly engaging and does a great job of uh, getting you excited for the season to come. It's a nine-episode season. I know the critics saw the first six. And uh, without spoiling anything, they've kind of universally been saying that uh, things are paid off. Better a tease early, which is great to hear. And you know, you, you mentioned the Tulsa Massacre. Of course, I mean that's no um, light thing to show on TV. Even if it makes for compelling TV. I mean that's that's the bloodiest day of racial violence in our country's history. You know, a lot of people don't know that. It's not like super uh, well 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 uh, re- reported or, or anything. But um, that's certainly a choice that I think having that frame. Uh, the Tulsa setting and how the cops are the way they are there uh, with like their guns being locked and having that shown uh, through a converse of a black cop pulling over a white guy at traffic stop and the obvious parallels to uh, uh, anxiety at the police uh, in in real life. I thought that was done really tactfully. But uh, I mean, you mentioned the world building in general and you know, in, in the comic and the movie, um, it's all about the nuclear panic. That that's what drives mm-hmm. and strikes fear into everyone in in the mid '80s. And you know, well, the the comic well, I think takes place in the '70s, right? Um, because it's Nixon who's president at that time. Well, yeah, and, but well, that's the thing. It's an alt history. So Nixon thinks the doctor Manhattan wins the Vietnam War and wins multiple elections, and Nixon's like very popular president. Funny enough. At the end of Watchmen, Robert Redford, the actor, of course, mm-hmm. is going to run against him. We know in this, in this He's series that Red- yeah. Redford's been president for long last time. So that's mm-hmm. a cool tie in. You saw Nixon on Mount Rushmore, um, yeah. squid, trans dimensional, uh, squid falls from the sky. It's, it's a callback to uh yeah. plot to wrap everyone in the movie. I think there's does a good job of, uh, setting the world and also, Bridging a lot of questions that is very interesting in terms of why the cops were the mask specifically, and um, just how everything got to got to where it is. And we know that Jean Smart, her character, is in fact uh, the second Silk Spectre from Watchmen, right. um, and she'll be coming up soon. Uh, does Doctor Manhattan actually show up in this show? We saw him on a newsreel. Is that even real? Could that be fake from the government? I don't know, but um, it's definitely enticing and of course we know Jeremy Irons we assume is playing the, Ozymandias. the 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 alive Ozymandias so what the hell goes on there I don't know but he's writing a play about um, dr. Manhattan the watchmaker's son that's who mm-hmm. Manhattan used to be so that's cool um, but yeah I just think that tonally you know it's like replacing nuclear panic with white supremacists uh, fears yep. you know it, it's very much smartly even if it's a little obvious bringing the Watchmen story and themes to today and the move, the show is taking place today. So I just really like that whole, the whole premise and the ideas we're getting started with. On top of that, the lead is Regina King who yeah. has three Emmys and an Oscar in like the past five years. Like I can't wait to see more. Yeah. And King is awesome in it, but just like so many of the steam so many of the scenes and the style like stand out so vividly whether it's you know you talk about that really tense moment um, where the cop is murdered by the seventh cavalry and you know he's like calling to get his gun released and uh, how right. like tense that is or um, when Regina King gets you know she's at the school with her daughter and the the re- red forations and then you have the squids like falling and then all of a sudden she Heads out and is a superhero all of a sudden, and tracking down this this guy who might know something about the killing, and set the police station, and how that all looks, and they have the was it the orb or uh, what was it? Yes, like some spear. kind of interrogation thing. Yeah. Yes, and just like the look of it all, it's so like stylistically well done, and you get I feel like so many like classic little Lindelof like framings, and just the way he goes about like little things of it uh, really remind me of like shots from the leftovers and things like that. And he's also able to kind of bring in like the human el- element in a lot of it. Like you see um, when uh, Don Johnson's uh, she, uh Judd is like singing Oklahoma uh, around the table to everybody and how like he interacts with everyone and uh, the relationships he has. But um, you also know that he's like a person who behind closed doors is like uh, authorizing police to basically go out and like shoot people if if need be to like take down the seventh cavalry. It's uh it's it just so well structured. Even if I don't understand everything that's going on yet, I I get the sense that the show really knows where it's going, and it does such a good job of setting up set pieces. Man, like that that raid on the farm was thrilling to watch, uh, exhilarating, and you know you're gonna get like one or two, maybe even three scenes like that every episode. I'm just uh really excited where the show can go uh yeah man it's uh i'm just excited that it, it it's as good as it is already mm-hmm. you know because the trailers the trailers didn't do a whole lot for me i was like all right this sounds like a good proof of concept but like you just can't get a sense of the tone mm-hmm. or how tactfully the tone is being handled until you actually watch it so i'm just excited that it, it it's great so this is good. You know, I just rewa I just reread the comic, uh, nice. past month. So it's been on the mind. Um, actually, I want to watch a movie too, just to refresh mm. my memory. I haven't seen that in a while, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited as hell for this. I think it's, um, it's funny. Actually, I want to pause this to you. I saw this going around. Is this show pro cop? Now, the critics haven't really mentioned this. So I, sh- I assume it gets much more gray, but there's a lot of police in the first one mm. and. They're, they're the leads they the good guys so we think um, that might be a problem for some people I don't know um, didn't come didn't come to mind to me but what, what do you think um I, I think the first episode is very like if it, it has to be pro one way probably pro pop because they're going up against it seems like white supremacists um, with the seventh cavalry um, however it, I mean the cops in this also are like Basically, these masked vigilantes, in a sense, um, in terms of how they are going about things. Um, I think I think it's going to get a lot murkier. So, I think it's too early to say, maybe. but Right. Um, yeah, that, that, that's an interesting thing. I didn't even really consider that much. Also, I like the touch of uh, American Hero Story. It's yeah. like um, Ryan, Ryan Murphy, Murphy meets Spider-Verse. Looks awesome. <laughs> I want to see that shit. Give me more Hooded Justice. Give me more of Dollar Bill. <laughs> really get them in the comics, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I-, I wanted to shout out uh Archie real quick getting uh, getting some shine in the first episode just lighting up some Nazis in the sky. I'm all for, I'm all for that. Yeah. I-, I like to see more of that. Maybe uh Rick Dalton could use that in his next film. Rick fucking Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> um, jumping to uh, some movies here. Cause we got quite a few to get to The Laundromat, Steven Soderbergh's second film. For Netflix Um, yeah this wasn't even a film that was really on my radar Um, you know it's based off of the 2017 novel secrecy world inside the Panama Papers and really looks at um, how Meryl Streep's character in this you know experiences a loss of her husband on a trip in Lake George Which shout out the capital region for that that (laughs) I guess like uh, tragedy (laughs) at the beginning of the film um and it looks like a couple of the scenes especially with schwimmer were actually shot maybe in one of the bars up there which is pretty cool but um yeah it, it really just looks at how the these people built these like fake um insurance organizations to just rip people off and make a lot of money and uh really affected people and the whole like uh the whole vibe, I mean, it feels very, like, big, big short to me with, like, Soderbergh pacing, so to speak, I guess. Um, especially, like, the way that they kind of jump around from person, like, each person. Um, how, what was your feeling on this? Because I I'm, I guess I'm trying to work out how I felt about the movie in general. Yeah, man. Um, it's funny, because on its face, Soderbergh, Streep, Banderas, Oldman... It sells itself. Yeah. Yet, coming out of the festivals, you're like, oh, wait a minute. This is kind of muted. And the, the way it was being placed, you saw Netflix start kind of took their foot off the gas in terms of any kind of push with this movie. Mm. And then it gets the really mixed reception. Um, I'd say leading negative. And that was a little perplexing. And then when I watched the movie, you know, it's told in a series of vignettes and I liked most of the vignettes. I thought I thought they're all pretty effective. Yeah, for some reason, I never I never felt like the movie fully brought it around, and it just it didn't really. I don't know. I I feel like I was really distracted for the whole movie. I don't know. Um, and like it ends in a very matter of fact, in your face way with the message, which is I guess is fine. Like I get the message was pretty clear the whole time. I don't know if you need to really spell it out like that, but like we, we know. The people that did this were really shitty. Yeah, and we know that that's still a case, and that kind of exploitation in our government financial system is still prevalent today. Like, cool, got it. Don't think you need to drive that home for the people with consciences. Like, (laughs) got it. But I mean, I don't know, man. It just, I, I just, I just feel like maybe I just wanted something different than what I got, and if I watched it again, I'd appreciate it more. But like I like, again, like like the China vignette, in particular I really enjoy. Yeah. It. And maybe I wasn't ready for it to jump around so much, and I felt like the through line was a little weak. Mm-hmm. Like Meryl Streep's whole presence in the movie, and then lack thereof for a huge chunk of the movie, kind of threw me for a loop, because I thought yeah. she was kind of the lead of it. Uh, and I think I think she's intended to be the lead, and certainly the way that the story wraps up, I think you're made to believe that as well it's funny cause I, I almost feel like this movie should have just been Buster Scruggs, you know, like even just like okay. if you want to do the vignettes just even make it more like this is a series of like 20 minute, 30 minute stories that I'm going to show, you know, even 15 minute stories and with a general through line about, you know, the, the Panama papers and these, um, these really terrible people and how it impacted people on all different levels. Um, But I feel like because the Soderbergh tried to make this such a cohesive piece, it almost ended up falling more flat. And like you said, with the in your face way that Streep wraps it up, um, it really just, uh, it really left me feeling like uh, it didn't have like the, the usual touch Soderbergh has, because I feel like he, even as recently as like high flying birds, he does such a good job of like folding in these little nuances to it and really like creating this sense of like what's actually going on in this world, why this is important. But this just didn't really feel like him. And I almost wonder if maybe he like, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if this is like a relationship with Netflix that, um, that is, what it is like maybe working out the way you want to I have no idea about any of that but like I almost it almost feels like he kind of phoned this one in in a sense to like just kind of get one out there maybe the production wasn't going the way he wanted but it just didn't feel like a Soderbergh movie so that was a little bit disappointing I think yeah um High Flying Bird as you said you know that movie is just much more crisper yeah. with what it's trying to say because it doesn't actually ever say what it means. Right. And I really like that movie. That's in my top uh, top 20 like this year. I think I think Bird's fantastic and once again shows just how much Soderbergh can do with very minimal production. Like he's such a boss when it comes to just making <laughs> yeah. movies. So I would never really denigrate him even if sometimes I don't know if they fully land, you know? Mm-hmm. And like this is his fourth movie since 2017. Logan Lucky... Unsane high flying bird laundromat. If only two of those are really awesome and one's just okay and one's kind of meh, that's pretty good. Yeah, good you batting know, like average. He's a boss. Oh, so absolutely. I'm not too, I'm not too worked up about it. No, not at all. And, you know, th- this is a movie that, I mean, other than my Netflix subscription, I was going to pay for anyway, cost me nothing. Um, I-, I still think there's a lot of fun moments. I, Even though I don't understand why I got so much time, I really liked the the really the vignette about the the dad who was banging the roommate and stuff <laughs> fascinating um right. and that's a thing too like i that vignette's really fun and mm-hmm. done well and just like <laughs> listening to like the daughter just talk mad spicy the whole time yeah it is great but it's like man this like it's such a loose connection to the overall right. plot in terms of like the the companies and the trusts and stuff and i'm like fine like it's all good, but yeah. Um, how'd you feel about Oldman and Banderas clearly on set for like two days? <laughs> yeah, just talking to the camera, being the narrators, being the shepherding everything through. Um, when I they first thought... started talking, I, I thought it was a little uh, jarring. Because, like, oh wait, they're clearly on a set right now, and mm. they walk down through the desert. I'm like, oh wait, actually, oh, it's actually positioned to be obviously a set. Okay, cool. But yeah, I mean, what'd you think? Because like they're just. Kind of in a weird way, but like they're clearly just hamming it up and enjoying themselves with the performance. That it almost like gets in the way. The fact that these are like A one scumbags, right? Yeah, it was funny because I at first I almost was like, "Is that really Banderas and Oldman?" Like, I it, it felt like such a almost like a shock seeing them playing that role and and being so like hammy with it and like you said, being so clearly on a set. But I, I thought they were very fun, and it it, it was kind of uh, like a a trick in a sense because they are such terrible people in the movie. Um, but I, I thought I like really liked both of them in it. Um, yeah. And so many people like pop up like Will Forte just shows up for literally two seconds to get murked. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, that's his whole role. It's kind Chris of, Parnell. <laughs> yeah. Chris Parnell. I mean, Sharon Stone's in this. Um, our guy, Jeffrey Wright, we mentioned before is in this. Um, wasn't the dad the dad who um, was banging the the roommate, he was yeah. in Thrones. He was um one of the uh Astapor. No, um he's one of the those like slave lords Danny kills. I think yep. I recognize yeah, him. Yeah, I recognize him too. Uh, yeah, just a lot of people in it, man. It's it's a, too bad it it wasn't better. Um, right, but you know, uh, like you said, Soderbergh. Uh, if this is if this is the worst that he can do, and it seems like it, it's still like there's still stuff that's fun to watch. So shout out to Soderbergh, we we respect you, we respect that. Uh, <laughs> I Dave, I respect that. But well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give the ball to you here and clear out because you were able to get to a lot of movies this weekend, and uh, I want to hear your thoughts on Pain and Glory. Speaking of Antonio Banderas, two movies this year, of course, The Laundromat, which we just spoke about, and Pain and Glory is the lead of the new Pedro Almodovar film. And Almodovar is a Spanish author that is incredibly prolific, who which is completely off my radar until this year. I had not seen any of his movies before. Uh he is year seventy year old Spanish man. Who has two Oscars and two other noms and just got the honorary gold Lion at Venice? Definitely a pillar of the international filmmaking community. And I just have not seen his movies. So I definitely want to go back and see that because I really liked the first movie I've seen, Pain and Glory. Um, it's interesting. This movie is kind of like a bit of like auto fiction, where it's um, Antonio Banderas is playing an old, um, seasoned, famous filmmaker who's in a creative rut and also dealing with a lot of physical and emotional pain and it's not direct um everything that happens is pretty fictional in terms of like the life of this uh this character played by Andaris, but it's pretty much ascribed to like is kind of digging deep in terms of what what he's showing this year and they actually recreated uh his actual apartment for the apartment set in the movie which is a pretty cool touch yeah um, and, you know, I'm not going to really spoil it. I think there's a whole lot to spoil. You know, it's a very uh, uh, emotional but subdued movie. And Banderas, who, I mean, for the most part, has not lent himself to prestige fair, right? Um, even his Spanish work. He's, I mean, for, what do we know him best with over here? Like Zorro and uh, Shrek 2? Like, like what, what's the best Banderas movie to you? Puss in Boots, dog, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> and like now, probably Zorro. Yeah, and here, you know, he's given a very tender, um, vulnerable performance. That's clearly his best work, and he's been thrown around as a best actor uh, contender. And as we've said before, that's a very stacked field this year with a lot of A list people. So I'm not sure if a role that's a little measured like this performance is enough to actually get the recognition. But it's, he's great. And again, he carries the whole movie. I mean, man, and there's, there's not going to be a spot for Banderas when Adam driver gets a nom for Kylo Ren Married story and the, uh, the report the report. <laughs> of course. And right. And Brad Pitt gets at Astra. And, uh, once upon uh, a time, once upon a time, of course. <laughs> um, yeah, it's funny too. Cause this movie, um, the way it works basically is, and uh, this not, I'm going to explain anything, but, uh, uh, what's the character's name? I forget his name, but uh, Banderas is uh, director character experiments with heroin to uh, <laughs> uh, m- mitigate his pain. It's, and he, he's like, he, he says it's for research. He, he takes it from a actor he had worked with 30 years ago and kind of meant some fences. And um, with that, when he gets really fucked up, he kind of has flashbacks and these flashbacks we see by his upbringing, uh, you know, the, East coast of Spain by Valencia, where he grows up and, uh, his mom in the flashbacks is played by Penelope Cruz, the goat, of course. <laughs> and, you know, in these, these flashback scenes, a lot of times they're quite short and the meaning is not actually, uh, obvious at the time. You kind of have to watch more of the movie to understand why you saw that beforehand. we uh, learn more about his, um, sexual awakening, a motive of, of course, the gay man and, um, just the kind of the cause of his pain and who he became, and ultimately, yeah, it's just a, it's a really subdued movie. I think Banderas like quietly has a lot of range in this movie, despite not having any like really showy scenes the way you expect of a Best Actor frontrunner. Um, but yeah, I, I would definitely recommend this. You know, um, and it's all in Spanish, of course, so you got to uh, lock in. I saw this right after Parasite, which was all in Korean, <laughs> so I, I was doing a lot of reading. <laughs> that day um but yeah i think this is definitely worth people's time and it's uh uh you know it's it's a, it's a small release you know? he's he's big overseas but he's never had a huge hit over here so this is not gonna expand too much bigger i'd imagine but i'd recommend painting for it it's funny uh back when i was a kid probably like when Zoro came out i would have like bet a lot of money that um Eric Bana and uh, Antonio Banderas both would have been a lot bigger than they ended up being. I feel like they're two that, because um, you know, Bana had, um, he had Black Hawk down and he was, I mean, everybody was in that. Um, but then you also had him in like uh, Troy and like a lot of other movies like that. And I feel like he was like, yeah, First he was Hulk on the movie. cusp of being like huge. And both of them feel like people, uh, actors that never really quite became what I expected. So I'm glad to see him doing some, some nice roles here as he's getting older. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, he's just kind of been more famous as like a famous husband these days. And again, like I can't speak to all of his international work, of course, but, um, yeah, I think it's just nice to, I think for US audiences to see a different side of Banderas, Absolutely. Uh, why don't we move on to Lighthouse? You actually attended a screening. Where the director did a question answer afterwards. Um, tell me, give me your thoughts on that, and tell me a little bit about Robert Eggers. Yeah, yeah. So Robert Eggers did a Q and A for the Light asking. thing. He did three Q and As last, uh, last uh, Thursday in Boston, mm-hmm. and I didn't actually where oh, was re- this. Light only played in eight theaters last weekend, <laughs> two of them in Boston. Yeah. Um, so how about that? But uh, yeah, this is his second movie. Of course, The Witch came out and I believe it was 2015, 16, starring Annie Taylor-Joy, one of her first big roles. And that was really kind of celebrated as like the quote-unquote elevated horror, intelligent horror that uh, Ari Aster's been doing recently and uh, other people. You know, it's not your slasher, uh, cliche horror movies, right? Mm-hmm. And you didn't watch The Witch. I didn't watch The Witch. Mm-hmm. We don't like being scared at the movies generally, mm-hmm. so we tend to avoid them even when they're good. But the lighthouse uh is a little different. And you know, I got the rapturous reviews out of con. Rapturous in the sense that people are like, like, this movie fucks. Literally, it turns out. Like this movie's all over like like crazy, right? Like there's so much about this that's awesome. The lighthouse, the lighthouse, the lighthouse. That's like that was just the buzz out of France. And I'm like, all right, I love Pattinson, well documented. Who doesn't like Willem Defoe? Always good, coming off two best sporting actor nominations in two years. Uh, Eggers, one for one so far. How about this next movie? And then it does more festivals, and then people were like, "Yeah, man, the lighthouse, The lighthouse is great. And I have to agree, man. Like I saw this, as you said, <laughs> at a Q and A, so it was a packed house. People that wanted to be there, great experience. Everyone was completely fucking focused on this movie. I did not see a single phone screen. No one talked. It was great. <laughs> and then Eggers, I think, actually had yeah, he had some fun uh insights, uh, jokes, uh, answered some I think people asked some good questions at the Q and A. So let I me mean, only talk for like, you know, 10-15 minutes if that. Mm-hmm. But um co- cool to see. That was my first time going to a director Q and A. So that, that that was that was sick. But this movie, I'm not gonna spoil what happens, but you know, just on this on the face, it's an A twenty four film that uh, eggers he shot this on location in nova scotia and it has a square aspect ratio it's in black and white shot on 35 millimeter film it's a film fans movie yeah i expect but most a24 movie possible sounds like right it. but coming off the witch i you know i was going in and i was like man i'm gonna be stressed as fuck watching this but i'm gonna do it for the content do it for the Pattinson fandom. And then I'm like, oh, it's not actually that scary. Like, it's quote-unquote a psychological horror movie, but it's almost more thriller to me. The thing is, there's so much stark imagery in this movie on top of the fact that it's already really stark being a black-and-white square-shot movie. But, you know, I mean, as the trailer would suggest, uh, it's very much indebted to, like, Herman Melville, you know, man versus nature, setting up with, like, the 1890s Pattinson's character. Shows up to be a lighthouse keeper. Uh, Defoe's the, the veteran keeper there, and they're just kind of on top of each other. It's very much a two-hander performance. There's like, they're, they're basically the only actors in the movie. And, you know, hijinks ensue as they start to lose grip with reality. You know, that's all I'll say about the plot. But what that leads to, I mean, from the start, Defoe, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, Wilm Defoe well documented as being a boss, but Having him like like, break down and chew out Pattinson in like 1890s like semen slang and like <laughs> insulting you like by calling you a scallywag, like literally like just going on like amazing soliloquies in 1890s <laughs> English, is just the best shit ever. It's awesome. And he's so good. He's got this long ass beard and he's like fucking farting and like <laughs> it's so good. And then Pattinson starts off much more subdued because as he starts to lose his marbles as the movie progresses, he just gets to let out and actually like kind of be more showy. And he hasn't actually been that showy in his past few roles, despite the wide variety of the roles he's taken, and we've talked about most of those movies. It's actually, I think, really cool to see our bats finally like really lash out and have fun. Like and like there's some interstitial scenes where like, you know, the storm's brewing. They got nothing else to do, so they're just getting fucked up at the dinner table, just drinking and they're singing and dancing around the table and again, it's all in like this eighteen nineties parlance so mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's really good, and I think overall the imagery the uh the way like the eggers will jump from scene to scene. it's the same cinematographer who did the witch uh I really can't say enough good things about the movie. I don't want to spoil anything though but really really engaging, thrilling movie awesome performances the scenery looks awesome despite the fact that you're just on this fucking rock with a lighthouse on it and the buildings around it It's there's not a whole lot to look at but uh, yeah uh, and then there's a few like really just out of out of nowhere scenes um, stuff and dead to like neptune poseidon you know um so yeah the lighthouse uh is expanding this weekend should continue to expand at least a little bit more from that so i would really recommend this if you're squeamish about horror fear not it's not a scary movie sounds like some wild movie making sounds just like a mm-hmm. crazy experience i'm definitely i definitely want to check it out in theaters because uh, i get the sense that you don't get the same feeling it a hundred percent yeah um and it, i get the same sense for a movie like parasite which i am Definitely going to prioritize seeing this week. Um, was really bummed I wasn't able to make it out to see it this weekend, gaining a lot of buzz. Almost everybody I've, I've, I've seen on Twitter talking about it or that I know has seen it said that this is the best movie of the year. Um, and the trailer in and of itself seems like it's set up as a real like psychological mind fuck. Um, so I'm really, really pumped to check it out. Um, another Korean movie. Uh, gaining a lot of buzz, you know, at the start of awards season, um, obviously was it burning last year. Oh yes, uh, that got a lot of buzz, and um, uh, I haven't checked that one out on Netflix either. But Dave, Parasite is all the is all the critical acclaim earned. So this is a no spoilers review of Parasite. We will be talking it once I see it. Parasite was everything I promised it to be. but I'm not going to spoil it. But Parasite is my number one movie of the year. Burning was my number one movie of 2018. Shout out, Korea. past two <laughs> years, killing it. Uh, Lee Jandong did Burning. Uh, Bong Joon-ho, of course, is the director of Parasite. We know him recently from Okja and Snowpiercer and The Host and a few other movies. And kind of the face of the Korean new wave that started at the turn of the century. And Parasite, I mean, you, you've talked about the, this, this critical acclaim, but it honestly can't be overstated how this movie has been doing to this point. It anon- uh, you, anonymously, unanimously won the Palme d'Or at Cannes earlier this year. First time that's happened since 2013. Bong, of course, also won Best Director at Cannes. But then it like thrills a telly ride and uh, New York Film Festival. And uh, Tiff as well. Like every, everyone's loving it, right? Meanwhile, it's been showing overseas. At this point, this movie has already grossed uh, almost ninety million dollars before it started here in the U.S. I believe oh, yeah. seventy plus of that, seventy million plus of that was in South Korea. So the hype is real. Ninety-nine percent Rotten Tomatoes from one hundred ninety-five reviews. That's only one negative review coming from the National Review. Take it that, make it that what you will. <laughs> um, and last week, I'm pretty sure it's the same guy that like fucked up Lady Bird's 99 rating yeah. and everything. Like and that. again, I I, like, I I don't actually I don't actually like like care about like the, the perfect rating shit. But just you know, just comment. it's annoying. Yeah. Um, the last sorry, the first week it was out, it was only in three theaters, right? Two in L.A., one in New York City, and it made three hundred seventy-six thousand dollars. That 125 per theater average was the highest of the year, of course. The highest ever for an international film here. And the highest since La La Land. And I've lived the 18th highest PTA ever. So from that point to last week, when I got to see it, it was on 33 screens and it was the 11th highest grossing movie of the weekend, uh, 1.1 million. So this movie has a chance to perhaps get into the top 10 highest grossing international films, depending on how this expands. Which is which? Which is pretty wild, you know. It's uh, I think it's a lock for best international film uh, nomination. Of course, I think our eyes are now set on this getting a best picture nomination and Bond getting a best director nomination. Roma kind of opened that up in terms of that seeming more realistic than it has recently. That being said, only eleven foreign films have been nominated for best picture, so it's still not a, a easy road. Lock, yeah. That being said, why do people like this movie so much? Uh and again, I'm not gonna spoil what happens or anything about it. But Bong, we know Bong. I mean, you've seen Snowpiercer Piercer and Oak right? hmm uh-huh. Yeah. And I actually haven't seen the other ones. I wanna say the host really bad. That's kind of a uh like a monster movie. But the thing that's cool about Bong is all his movies seem to really revolve around class and social structures, right? Sometimes it's very obvious a dystopian train navigating the globe, right? <laughs> and the host from what I understand, is about mm-hmm. uh, corporate malpractice leading to a literal monster getting born out of a lake or something and terrorizing a town. And Okja um, is probably the most widely seen of all these movies because it was a Netflix film. Um, people know that. Uh, super pigs and uh, uh, factory farming. Yeah, but all all comes back to class. And the thing about uh, Parasite, which is really cool, is that it's it set in Seoul, set in Korea, that's the in-Korean Korean cast. What do you expect? But the wealth gap in South Korea is very much a real thing these days. And this movie is like really obviously uh, tackling that. But if you watch the trailer, you understand see the logline of the movie. It's about a very poor family of four that basically infiltrates this into the services of a uh, very rich family in Korea. The uh, Kim family is infiltrating the Park family. And by infiltrate, I mean, like, they start working for this family by, like, kind of finessing the plug and just kind of getting in there and getting into this really nice house and working for this really wealthy family that's a little aloof and unaware of what's going on. And Bong, of course, is really adept at weaving in the class observations and the countless metaphors onto all of his movies. And in this case, Parasite is fucking hilarious. And these are jokes that land even when you're reading them as subtitles. So it's funny. A lot of black humor, to be honest. Super, super thrilling. There's a whole other layer to Parasite that you're completely unaware of until you start watching the movie. I'm not going to give any hints about what that is. But once that happens, your awareness of what Bond's metaphors mean takes on a completely new meaning in your head. And it's done in such a masterful way that I, now I want to see the movie again now that I clearly <laughs> know where it's going. Um, it's so great. And of course, Bond, just as a pure director, now not just a writer, like he writes all his movies too and all this concept goes credit to him. But as a director, he makes the movie so it, it's staged in such a thrilling way that as this movie crests, it's just impossible to look away. And I mean, his shots, you can think of shots in Oak you can think of shots in So In this case, there's a scene, extended sequence in the rain in the middle of the movie that is all these different angles. And I'm like, these are just like master shots constantly. And the fact that you got these shots with actual rain falling kind of like blows my mind. It looks awesome. And, you know, re- there's a really good vulture profile about Bong. And I was kind of, re- I read that uh, two weeks ago. Learning more about his uh, upbringing in Korea as Korea was getting much more liberal and much more democratic um, in, the, in like the '80s, and hearing how that's kind of shaped his worldview, combined with his his filmmaking process, he storyboards literally everything, which you know that's not uncommon. A lot of people storyboard. Robert Eggers at the Q and A actually uh, told me how told everyone how he wasn't a huge fan of storyboarding. What's funny though, because Bong storyboards so intricately that uh, I think Tilda Swinton commented that uh, it's almost like comic books, almost like reading mm. manga. His storybooks. storyboards are that detailed. Wow. And then he actually works with that where he doesn't shoot coverage, meaning the only stuff that he shoots with his cameras is the actual scenes he's making for the movie. There's no other cameras catching other angles just to make sure you have enough film to piece the movie together. He's so precise with his storyboards that he only shoots what he needs, which is pretty much unheard of. And like, and obviously for a blockbuster, you can never do that. Just not, not, not realistic. But Bong mm-hmm. is such a—he's such a fine tune on what he's trying to do with his movies. He's able to do that, which is fantastic to learn about. Um, and you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit about Korean movies. Like you said you haven't seen Burning, but I mean, Park Chan Wook. We talked about his work on Little Drummer Girl last year. He, of mm-hmm. course, is famous for Old Boy and The Handmaiden. I think him and Bong and Lee Chang Dong, who did Burning, are they're the most famous Korean filmmakers, at least to, to uh, us here in the States. But in the meantime, it's a, it's bong season, man. And Neon is distributing this movie. They have not done an Oscar push before. And the biggest push they did to date really was Itanya, which did not get a Best Picture nomination, got some love for the acting nominations and, of course, Alex and Jenny one. But now it's up to Neon to get this movie that everybody loves and is a financial hit the Oscars because as soon as you see this movie, you're getting on that train. Yeah. So. Cannot say enough good things about Parasite, and it's once you have can have a spoiler-filled conversation about it. I think it's even more fun to talk about. So and this fucking movie <laughs> that will hopefully be next week that we can deliver that. I'm, I can't wait. The hype can't be higher for for me. So um, really excited to check out that and Lighthouse, um, but hopefully we'll also have Jesus is King next week. Um, maybe JoJo Rabbit to talk about. What else should we uh, tell our audience to be listening to? Yeah. Uh, speaking of comebacks from Antonio Banderas, we also get a comeback of sorts from Eddie Murphy with Dolomite is My Name on Netflix for everyone. Uh, FKA Twigs is releasing her first album in, God, is it five years? Speaking of our Pattinson, former girlfriend. Um, the Deuce is wrapping up its third and final season on Monday. And Silicon Valley is starting its fifth. Six and final season? Six and final season on Sunday. So, uh, the content minds dig deeper every week. Hit that subscribe on YouTube, soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod to follow the podcast any way you want to. And at nostalgia pod on Twitter, hit us up for that not off pod content, I guess <laughs> I'll, I'll call it. Um, till next week, peace out. Peace.